For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. What happens when we don't intentionally plan those read-alouds, we lose some of their instructional opportunities and benefits. This is Susan Lambert, and welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast from Amplify, where the science of reading lives. Season 8 is now officially underway, and this time, we're focusing on the critical role of knowledge when it comes to literacy development. Over the course of this season, we'll delve into the research on knowledge building and discuss best practices for supporting students. And on this episode, we're exploring an especially fun and important tool for building knowledge, read-alouds. My guest is Dr. Molly Ness, a former classroom teacher, a reading researcher, a teacher educator, and the author of the recent book, Read-Alouds for All Learners a comprehensive plan for every subject, every day, grades pre-K through eight. On this episode, we dive into all the reasons that read-alouds are so effective for students, and we talk about how to use read-alouds most effectively in the classroom. Listeners will come away from this conversation with some new ideas and strategies for using read-alouds in their community. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Molly Ness. I'm so excited, Molly, to have you join us on today's episode. Well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. We would love if you would tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself um, and and maybe even how you got into the world of of literacy. Sure. Um, So I started my career as a classroom teacher. Um, Right out of college, I actually thought I was going to go to law school. I joined Teach for America and spent two years teaching in Oakland, California, and quickly realized that public education and literacy in particular were the social justice issues that mattered to me the most. But I knew I didn't know a lot. And so after teaching in Oakland, I taught in Los Angeles for a bit and then came back east and um, was fortunate enough to study reading education at the University of Virginia, where my research mostly focused on comprehension at the secondary level. Okay. Finally, I think my family recognized, okay, she's, she's doing the education thing. She is not going to <laughs> law school. Um, and eventually realized that what I really found um, interesting was sort of being one of the people who could convey research to classroom teachers. My, my lens was always 
what was relevant to me as a classroom teacher on a Tuesday afternoon. So I sort of saw myself as somebody who could who could help bridge that gap between research and practice. And for 16 years, I was a teacher educator doing exactly that in New York City. I was a professor at Fordham University working in teacher education um, and left about a year and a half ago. Um, I have always been interested in literacy as an issue of social justice. Um, I've been very interested in book access. I have been very interested in teachers' instructional beliefs and decisions. Um, and right now I serve as the Vice President of Academic Content at Learning Ally. Um, and I have the honor of being on lots of boards, um, the New York State chapter of the Reading League and the International Literacy Association. I always think about myself as somebody who I do a lot of writing about reading and reading about reading. That is the, uh, the way I sort of see my world and professional circles come together. Well, it makes sense then that you were inspired to actually author a book, which is what we want to talk with you about today. And that book is called, I'm going to try to get this right, Read Alouds for All Learners, A Comprehensive Plan for Every Subject, Every Day, Pre-K through 8. That's a mouthful, but exciting. It is. Thank you. Um, yeah. So the book came about because as somebody who has lived in the world of reading research for almost three decades now. I'm so grateful for this moment in our literacy landscape where there's so much buzz and focus, um, podcasts and documentary films and social media conversations and even uh, mainstream media covering reading instruction. But I have been a little concerned that we focus so much on foundational skills that we are overlooking we're not paying enough attention to things like vocabulary and comprehension and all those what we know as unconstrained skills on the top part of the reading rope. Um, so I was thinking back to what was one of my favorite things as a classroom teacher to do, which was read alouds and found that um, there wasn't a whole lot connecting read alouds to the science of reading and really helping teachers plan effective read alouds across content areas. So a, a great motivation, and not just in the younger grades. So we often talk about read-alouds with preschool kids or grades one or kindergarten, first and second grade, but you chose to go all the way up through eighth grade. Why did you choose to do that? I did. I very firmly believe that, um, and, and some of this is backed by a powerful body of research that shows how all students benefit from read-alouds and that read-alouds really are the way to build language comprehension. And just as they are so effective when we think about sort of the typical early childhood experience of a read aloud, a teacher in a rocking chair, kids around his or her feet, um, those benefits continue in upper elementary school as well as um, middle school. I will say that the book doesn't specifically focus on high school. That um, is no way a message that read alouds should not happen in high school. Um, it's just my particular learning and teaching experience was K through eight. So um, I will look forward to somebody else writing the book about the power of read alouds in high school as well. There you go. Well, before we get too much further down the road, I'd love if you could just do a definition of read aloud. And it seems like, well, why does Molly need to do a definition of read aloud? But I think there's probably some misconceptions about a read aloud. Sure. Um, I see a read aloud as an interactive language experience. When we think about that 
language interaction. I think about the ping pong kind of thing where a teacher reads something, elicits a conversation from students, that those conversational turns, which are so essential in read aloud. So it's a shared literacy experience around a text. That text can take so many forms. It can be the classic picture book. It can be a political speech in a social studies classroom. It can be a headline about an athletic event in physical education. Um, Whatever that shared text is and that interaction between teacher and students. And I'm specifically looking at read-alouds with more than one student. So I'm thinking about the classroom context, Mm -hmm. small group or whole group. But we know, of course, that there are so many benefits to the the one-on-one read-aloud that we typically see more in home environments. Mm, Yeah. So what does the, um, when, when we're thinking about, you know, using the, the research to base this as a whole group sort of instructional approach for students. What does the research tell us about the benefits of read-alouds? Well, I will say that the the body of research around read-alouds is a long-standing body of research, and um, it really focuses on so many benefits, linguistic benefits, socio-emotional benefits, motivational benefits. We know that read-alouds help students identify as a reader and um, build their self-efficacy of who they are as a reader. We have a pretty profound body of research showing that um, read-alouds improve students' comprehension, their vocabulary. Um, They build that knowledge, that background knowledge, and what I refer to as funds of knowledge. They foster higher-order thinking. I will say one of the, the real joys of writing this book is I got to dive into a relatively new body of research that looks at the physiological benefits of read-alouds. And this really, um, I got to really geek out about, about the physiological benefits. Can you tell us more about that? That's very interesting. Sure. So um, there's a really interesting study um, that happened to take place at University of Virginia, where I had studied, where um, a nurse practitioner actually was working in the neonatal intensive care unit. And these are the medically fragile babies who um, are, you know, in incubators with lots of wires. They're... um, parents are often sort of not sure how to interact with them because it's not the traditional experience of having your baby and putting it in your arms right away and taking it home. Um, What we know, um, men and women who have children in the neonatal unit often have higher levels of postpartum depression. Um, And so this study created essentially a reading garden where they took babies and gave them three different types of treatments, all dependent on their medical stability. So we had really fragile babies all the way up to more robust babies who were about to be discharged. And the babies received read-alouds from their parents or caregiver that was specific to their condition. So a medically fragile baby might have whisper reading for um, a shorter duration of time, whereas the babies who are sort of more robust and ready to to be on their way had longer readings at sort of a more level, uh, a louder voice level. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that these babies, their heart rate slowed their oxygen saturation rates increased. And um, these rates of sort of stability and sort of this calm state of physiological being continued for up to 30 minutes after the read aloud. 
So we actually started wow. to see some medical benefits. And um, interestingly, the um, parents and caregivers who were more likely to experience postpartum depression um, had lower rates of postpartum depression when reading to their children. And 100% of participants said that they saw the benefits of reading aloud and that they would continue it with their children at home. That was followed up with um, another study where children who were hospitalized um, reported lower levels of pain, and we actually were able to see higher levels of oxytocin, which is that neurochemical transmitter that is often associated with pleasure, and lower levels of cortisol, which is one of the body's signifiers mm -hmm. of stress. So children reported their pain levels decreased in the hospital, and we actually saw it with um, some pretty compelling um, physiological data. Wow. That is amazing. And that's, that is, that doesn't even take into consideration for these children, the benefits of just that language development that's happening also simultaneously. So uh, a win-win there. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure if we were to look at those babies and those children, those school-aged children, and look at um, the parts of their brain that light up with language experiences, we would mm -hmm. see those as well. Um, so, so pretty powerful stuff going on holistically when kids are read to. Hmm. So I know this, this really motivated you to want to write this book. And, you know, I think teachers think, of course, we're going to use read alouds. Do you think that they understand the power of read alouds um, in terms of, of class, the classroom? I think teachers understand um, that read-alouds are a should-do. I think teachers understand that their kids enjoy read-alouds. What I don't think teachers understand is the, and I say this having been one of those teachers, yeah, yep. um, I, I think that teachers don't understand um, the intentionality that needs to happen in planning the read-aloud. And this was actually confirmed um, by a 2017 study. Um, which was a survey of early childhood teachers, um, McCafferty and Hisrich. What they did was they looked at teachers' instructional decisions and moves as they planned read-alouds, and 50 to 70% of their sample reported that they didn't actually plan their read-aloud other than selecting the text. And yeah. I think back to eons ago when I was in the classroom, I thought planning a read aloud was, you know, knowing which book I was going to choose and knowing how many pages, if it, if I wasn't going to read the whole thing, how many pages I was going to cover. Um, yeah. I didn't think it was one of those times that I had to think about objectives and outcomes and extensions and modifications and all of those things. And what happens when we don't intentionally plan those read alouds, we lose some of their instructional opportunities and benefits. Yeah, I ask that question intentionally because me too, right? Thinking back when I was a classroom teacher and how I used read alouds, I always read aloud. I mostly taught third grade, always read aloud, of course, after kids come in from lunch and recess. Me too. And, yep. Introducing them to the most exciting new fiction text that I want them. And, and I think the planning for me was, yes, selecting the text, but I also at least read the chapter ahead before I read it aloud to them, but I don't know that I did anything after I read ahead. So, so my planning too was not really that much. Well, well, you, I will say you planned more than I did. I remember my first year of teaching, 
reading aloud the um, Andrew Clements book, Frindle, which was a new book oh, yeah. at the time um, that speaks to, to how long ago <laughs> it was. Um, and I um, hadn't read the book. And if you've read Frindle, you know, the book ends with this really powerful emotional scene. And I wasn't expecting it. I hadn't I hadn't previewed the text and all of a sudden here I am and sitting in front of these sixth graders crying and sort of teary eye misting. And the kids are looking at me, of course, like she's crazy because, you know, here's the teacher in the front. <laughs> They're all sweaty and everything from recess and lunch. And here I am. It's just so sweet what the characters do. And um, <laughs> so. Oh, fun moments. Well, let's talk a little bit about this planning. So, um, and I would imagine that when we're thinking about the early elementary grades, the middle elementary grades, middle school, sort of planning takes on a different look and feel. But what do you mean when you say you need to intentionally plan your read-alouds? Sure. So I mean that we need to search prior to reading for instructional opportunities as well as, as instructional potentially obstacles. So I um, introduce a three-step planning process for the read aloud, and it sort of occurs in that before, during, and after format, which many of us are familiar with. Before reading the text, not only, of course, do I want to choose a book that's um, relevant and engaging and all those wonderful things, I will actually also add that there's a lovely article from 2022 by Kristen Conradi Smith and colleagues that that shows that actually teachers are um, read alouds are um, the majority of those titles are 25 years old, sort of those beloved texts that oh, wow. we yeah. Yeah, um, and that fiction continues to dominate and also sort of a confirmation that um, teachers we don't often plan where we're going to stop during a read aloud and what we're going to say. So um, this process that I've created helps to do that. Um, the first step is evaluate. So before we look at, uh, before we go in front of kids, we have our book, we evaluate funds of knowledge that are necessary for kids to understand. Meaning, what does the text assume we are bringing to the page? What background information do we need to know? Um, what social nuances happen in the book that um, potentially, if we don't front load them or pre-teach them could obstruct comprehension. So I, I identify those potential obstacles as well as those opportunities. Um, those opportunities, this is a great place to make an inference, or this is a great place to um, connect to a text that we had previously read. So we're really critically evaluating what is going to happen in the read aloud. Then the second step, I'm in front of my kids either, you know, that traditional rocking chair or I'm, you know, walking up and down the aisles of my seventh grade social studies classroom and I'm explaining. So I'm explaining vocabulary, vocabulary that is really worthy of explicit instruction, as well as those words that you just got to know to get through this particular part. And then I'm also explaining through think alouds, that first person I language, that narrative, like me cracking my teacher head open and showing what I'm doing to make meaning here so that kids are more likely to do that themselves. Um, we know there's so much power in think alouds, um, but typically what happens during a read aloud is we ask kids questions. Um, and that's useful. It's a great way to engage in conversation, but it doesn't actually build comprehension necessarily, whereas a think aloud is me 
showing you, me literally demonstrating through that narrative language how to make sense of a text. And then the third step is the after reading component, and I consider it engage and extend. So I engage kids in opportunities from the book. Maybe these are socio-emotional learning opportunities. Um, I also extend the text into other literacy-rich areas. So what other ways can I foster reading, writing, speaking, and listening beyond the purview of this particular text? So all of these, it's, you know, the the three or four E's, as I say it, evaluate, explain, engage, and extend. And these are relevant if you are reading the classic picture book to a first grade classroom, or you're reading a um, novel in verse to your sixth grade science class. You know, as you were talking about that, you know, I got this vision of a teacher walking up and down in a seventh grade classroom. Let's say it's a it's a, a history or social studies class, and and I think sometimes we look at read alouds and and read the text aloud if the students seem to be struggling. So we use a read aloud as sort of a support mechanism, as opposed to using it as an instructional approach. And you're probably saying that when you're saying. We need to plan ahead. We need to look for opportunities to utilize read-alouds. And so can you talk a little bit about that difference, right? An instructional approach versus a scaffold. Yeah. So, um, well, we know that readers, when they listen to a read-aloud, get access to all of that rich content, that vocabulary, those language comprehension bits, which may be well beyond what they're able to independently decode. And so Mm -hmm. when we add things like think-alouds and being explicit in our vocabulary, we are building their metacognition and the ability to understand text. And so it's really that um, thinking through how can I beef up their comprehension here? How can I add to their world knowledge and vocabulary using this text as an entry point into it? I also think one of the things, um, what what I hope teachers will do is recognize that read-alouds don't have to be that 15-minute start-to-finish, sit in front of your kids in a rocking chair kind of thing, that we can read aloud from a paragraph of a headline newspaper article. We're all coming off of um, a summer of unusual weather patterns, so great way to read aloud in a science classroom, that when we read aloud from little short bits of text, that that accumulates over the course of a day. And so it's exposing kids to a wide variety of text that's done in a teacher-facilitated, scaffolded, supported way throughout the day. Many opportunities, not just in a sort of start to finish, but lots of these little bursts as we see it. I'm wondering if you have an example of someone that used, or maybe you used a read aloud um, as an instructional approach and and saw a really big impact with it. Yeah. So um, the book that I always think about um, that has so many opportunities, and I think we overlook a little bit is um, Mo Willems. Everybody loves Mo Willems, his book, Knuffle Bunny. When I look at the book, Knuffle Bunny, if it's been a while or you're not familiar with it, it's a very simple story. It's about Trixie, who is a probably a preschooler or toddler. Um, And she goes to the laundromat with her father and she carries her beloved stuffed animal with her and loses it at the laundromat. And the whole story is this family's quest to find this beloved stuffed animal. So there's a lot in it to unpack. There's a, a lot of comprehension assumptions that the reader's 
brings to the page that if mm -hmm. we don't explicitly do something with, meaning is lost. So for example, background knowledge, you have to know what a laundromat is. Not every kid does. Maybe they have yeah. a washer and dryer in their home. Um, it is a space that is often um, unique to either rural areas or urban areas, but you have to know that as a setting. You have to know it as a place that you go to access washers and dryers. There's also some funds of knowledge, as I consider. Funds of knowledge are sort of more of the social capital, those nuances, those patterns and ways of interaction that add meaning to a text. So in this particular story, Trixie's dad is the one who goes to the laundromat. Trixie's mom stays home. The book starts with them saying goodbye to Trixie and her dad, and the dad goes out and does this. Well, that's a social nuance that's specific to that family. And if you grew up in a family where the mother was always responsible for domestic chores, that's something you might not understand. But by explaining, mm -hmm. um, you know, let's put up a Google slide of a, a laundromat and let's talk about how in this book, here's how this family divides chores. We improve kids' ability to make meaning of the text. So instructionally, we're using it as a way to introduce new points of view, new perspective, um, new settings, all of these things, which if we just sort of opened up the book and read, we're assuming a lot about what the reader is bringing to the page. And when we assume, we overlook those comprehension opportunities and obstacles. And I actually, I was guilty of this myself. Mm -hmm. um, I went into a classroom in an upper middle class area and read Knuffle Bunny and assumed that all of the kids were going to know what a laundromat is. Well, this was an upper middle class area where some of these houses not only had a laundry room, but they often had somebody outside of the family who was responsible for doing the laundry, a housekeeper mm -hmm. or what have you. Right. And at the end of the book, kid raised his hand and um, asked, you know, what's that place where they go? And I thought he was just unfamiliar with the term laundromat. He was unfamiliar with the entire concept. And mm. sort of, sh I thought about it because kind of shame on me. My assumption was that these were kids who had came from privilege. They had upper middle class backgrounds, professional families. Um, and I sort of assumed that because of that, they would have more world knowledge and broader funds of knowledge when um, that's not actually the case, that we all have those gaps in knowledge and life experiences, regardless of where we come from and regardless of our zip code and regardless of our personal or family situation. Mm, it's such a good point. I mean, I think I think picture books in particular, it's it's a good challenge for teachers to look at picture books and and try to, you know, figure out what that knowledge is that the, the picture book assumes because there's often more than than what we think about, right? We assume, oh, these are picture books, they're written for young readers, but often they're useful with older readers too, just because of those layers sort of, of, of meaning and comprehension that are in them. Yeah. And when I was writing the book, I was able to go into an elementary school that really had um, adopted read-alouds as a universal non-negotiable, uh -huh. meaning every kid was going to see them, be it their homeroom teacher or their music teacher. Um, and I was amazed to even see the gym teacher they were about to study. Remember, in, in, um, I remember back to my elementary school, we had to do like six weeks of volleyball and six weeks of square dancing and yeah. all these sort of units. And um, the way that the gym teacher read 
was literally went online. They're, these kids were starting um, volleyball. And so they went online and they looked at whatever the National Association for Volleyball is. And they literally like did a read aloud of the rules and the guidelines and the um, how to play the sport. And then throughout that however many weeks of volleyball instruction. The teacher brought in newspaper articles and um, biographies of volleyball players and just all of these really clever ways to show that, nope, literacy is what connects us all across this school. And the same thing was happening down the hallway with the music teacher who was you know, reading biographies of musicians. And the same thing happened in the art class where the teacher was reading aloud a beautiful picture book um, about the person who created Crayola crayons. Mm. And, and I specifically am highlighting kind of these electives or sort of specialty yeah. areas because those are the ones that read alouds happen least frequently. What, what, what makes a school decide that they're going to adopt read-alouds school-wide as an approach? Well, some of it was just joy. They saw how joyful kids were in the read-aloud. And, and most teachers say the same thing as well. They enjoy reading aloud. They think it's one of their favorite times of the day. So some of it was just the sheer joy. And a lot of it was the recognition that while kids had strong foundational skills, they could decode and they were working so much on sort of word identification, but how are they getting to vocabulary and how are they building mm. background knowledge? Um, those unconstrained skills, nothing was in place necessarily. And they were working with a program of foundational skills skills program, which um, didn't leave as much room for teacher choice and flexibility. Sure. And, um, mm -hmm. and the read aloud was a great way to honor teachers' individual priorities, decisions, interests, all of those things. And so um, that was what brought them to the read aloud, which again, this was, you know, relatively short. We're not talking about 40 minutes. We're not talking about instruction, which takes the place of um, explicit reading instruction, but getting to vocabulary, background knowledge, all those things that we know kids need through a variety of texts across a variety of topics and a variety of text formats. Hmm. That's, that is so great. I love the way that you said that because we know that you know, the, the science of reading community, yes, we understand explicit and systematic instruction and word recognition. So kids get really, really, really automatic in terms of the word level skills. But we can't neglect the language development side. We can't neglect getting kids um, information. And read aloud is a great way to do it through background knowledge for vocabulary, even sentence structures and the flow of language. So you don't have to do either or, right? This is both and, isn't it? This is both and. And I always think about the read aloud not only as a must do, but also a should do and get to do. And what I mean by the get to do is it's a privilege. It's an honor. It's a joy um, to choose a text, be it a full picture book or just a short excerpt of something and share it with kids and make meaning with it and have that be a universal thing that you all share across whatever your content is. So it's a, it's a privilege and it's something that we need to honor. And we know that the majority of teachers are reading aloud. The scholastic reports are fabulous for showing the percentage of um, read alouds that happen. We know that about three quarters of teachers say that they read aloud frequently, 
but only a third of teachers report reading aloud daily. So my mm. hope is that not only do we increase the frequency, but we increase who is getting to do the read aloud, which is everyone, be it the homeroom teacher or the ELA teacher, all the way to the science teacher, pre-K through eight. Yeah. Um, any examples that you can share about middle school non-ELA teachers using read-alouds and finding a big aha with this approach? Well, um, most of the teachers that I worked with recognized that the kind of classic textbook that they had for their seventh grade or eighth grade social studies. Yeah. You know, um, I was a sixth grade teacher and our social studies was all ancient civilizations, Mesopotamia and Rome and Greece. And we had these lovely books, um, which were really difficult to read. Um, and so what teachers found is that a picture book explanation of um, ancient Greece or the ancient Greek Olympics was a really great entry point to mm -hmm. build that background knowledge that they could use as a pre-teaching or a front-loading kind of thing, and then improved kids' comprehension of what the actual textbook was. So lots of people were using it as a, I know this is a difficult text that we have to get through. Um, and textbooks can be problematic for, for many different reasons, but most people were really just amazed by, wow, I can actually teach my kids chemical reactions in an eighth grade um, chemistry class through picture books, because right now the variety and quality of picture books is just astounding. I mean, you can find, literally you can find picture books about um, fractals, which are um, patterns that occur in nature and use that as a entry point into geometry for upper middle school students. Hmm. So anything that you would say to teachers to avoid doing while they're doing a read aloud, is there any cautions you have? Well, I think one of the big cautions is that you have to start and finish the book. Um, certainly a book like Nuffle Bunny, you got to start it, you got to finish it. Yep. But what I mean is that we can read aloud from passages. We don't have to commit to the whole book. We can also show that we can abandon books because if mm. the book that you are reading is not grabbing your attention or captivating your kids, it's okay to model. And I actually think it's powerful to model. You know what? This isn't this isn't the right book for us right at this moment. Um, let's move on to something else. That, that happened to me um, as a sixth grade teacher. I was reading the book Hatchet to my kids. Mm. And this was, again, eons ago before my kids were all living in a very urban area. They This was before survival was on and all of these sort of yeah. <laughs> TV shows. And so they had no frame of reference to Hatchet. And I had um, selected it because I had a cousin at the time who was a sixth grader and he had loved it, but it wasn't the right book for my kids at the right time. And so I stopped and surveyed kids. How many of you want to finish this? How many of you want to abandon and move on to something else? The, the majority abandon it. The ones who wanted to keep reading, it was their book that they read during independent reading time. So I think we need to push against the idea, what we often have in our head, which again, I keep coming back to this kindergarten teacher in a rocking chair, that that's the only way to read aloud. There are so many ways to read aloud, short texts, um, speeches. There's just so much that we can read um, and in so many different varieties. So I think we need to sort of break down our conception of um, what a read aloud is and recognize that the benefits happen across content areas, across text genres and across age levels. 
So talk to us a little bit about the structure of the book. And by the way, we'll link listeners in the show notes. So the book is um, the first couple chapters are sort of an introduction. Why why are we talking about read alouds in 2023 at this prime time where the science of reading is front and center? So um, the introduction in the first chapter dive into the research, the um, benefits for um, reading aloud in terms of academics and socio-emotional benefits and those some of those physiological, all of those, those different benefits. Um, and then I talk through this process of here's how you can plan a read aloud. Here's what the first step looks like. Here's the second and third steps. Um, and then I go through it with three different books, um, a book at the K2 level, a book at the three through five level, and a book at the um, six through eight level. There's also a chapter that specifically looks at ways to read aloud in some of those specialty area classes, how to read aloud in in math, how to read aloud in um, music and arts and PE, because I really want to um, broaden the vision of who reads aloud and what is read aloud. And then there's tons of resources in the appendix. Anytime you write a book that includes titles, by the time it comes out, there are already more titles out there. Um, So there are just different resources about um, ways to choose text because there's so many pre-existing books that are about choosing the title to read aloud. And I go into that, but I, I let some of my previous colleagues do more of that. Um, So this is really just, here's the way you plan it. Let's walk through it in terms of demonstrations. Um, And as somebody who spent almost two decades training future teachers, early career teachers, I always, my frame of reference is always when I'm, you know, not only when I was a sixth grade teacher, but when I was, you know, what my students would have needed in that moment, the clarity, the examples, the sort of hand-holding scaffolding um, so that you're ready to try it out immediately. So it's written with that sort of that frame of reference as well. That's awesome. Congratulations on the book again. And, and you know, this is the you know, start of the school year. And so um, it's a great time to try out new instructional approaches to sort of support what happens in the classroom. Any tips or suggestions you have for teachers um, to walk into this read aloud process? Besides buying your book, of course. Uh, Well, um, (laughs) just to embrace the joy of the read-alouds, I think um, as teachers, there's so much on teachers' plates right now. Um, And it can often feel overwhelming when we say, here's one more thing to try. The good news about the read-aloud is, for the most part, teachers enjoy it and kids love it. And so this is one of those returning to the joy but doing it in a way that's really intentional, really purposeful, and um, really inclusive of text and um, the areas in which we read aloud. So my hope is that it will be an encouragement, not only how to do it in a more strategic way, but this sort of like, oh yeah, I used to really carve time for read alouds because I loved them and my kids were so excited by them. Um, But here's how I can make it um, even more beneficial and more intentional. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Molly. It was just really interesting. Um, I appreciate the work that you've done around read alouds in that upper part of Scarborough's Rope. And, and we look forward to following up with you soon to see how the book is impacting teachers across the country. So thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you to you and all of your colleagues who at Amplify who do so much to um, help teachers better reach students. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Molly Ness, former classroom teacher, reading researcher, teacher educator, and author of the recent book, Read Alouds for All Learners, a comprehensive plan for every subject, every day, grades pre-K through eight. Check out the show notes for a link to her book. Also, for Science of Reading the Podcast listeners, we have a special promo code for a discount on Molly's book. Check out the show notes for more information on that. Science of Reading the Podcast is brought to you by Amplify. For more information on how Amplify leverages the science of reading, go to amplify.com slash CKLA. As this eighth season gets underway, we want to hear from you. Let us know your questions in our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Also, as we focus on knowledge building, we would love to hear from students about their favorite classroom topics. If you know a young person who might want to hear their voice on this podcast, go to amplify.com slash student testimonials. That's amplify.com slash student testimonials. Next time, we've got a fun conversation with Dr. Gina Cervetti about effectively building students' vocabulary. We'll also talk about expanding our understanding of student knowledge beyond just subject area knowledge. What I'm learning is that knowledge is so complex that it actually offers a number of different benefits and different kinds of knowledge actually benefit literacy development in different ways. Make sure to catch that and the rest of season eight by subscribing to Science of Reading the Podcast on any and all podcast platforms. While you're there, please consider rating us and leaving a review. That will help more people find the show. Thank you again for listening.